0: Paul mentioned I work for Frog, um, we're a design and strategy consulting firm, I think what we try to do is combine thinking about things in terms of people and individuals and how individuals experience things in their lives, uh, but also individuals within systems um, and how um, those two layers interact. And I think that, that's the lens that you'll see come through as I talk today. Um, <laughs> it seems like every speaker n- needs to provide a definition of well-being, um, and uh, I will um, try to, to, to walk through a little bit of a definition of well-being, kind of functional to what I want to talk about today. So first of all, I think many people have said it today, well-being is this multifaceted concept, right? It is, it is a state of being, right? so it's something that's internal to ourselves. Um, But it's a state of being that's composed of multiple things. It's about feeling a sense of purpose. It's about feeling autonomy and self-direction. It's about our connectedness to other people, our emotional state, our health state, um, achievement, self-esteem. All of these things together contribute to um, a combined state of well-being or of of non-well-being. And it's also multi-causal. There are many, many factors at the root of well-being Um, we have, uh, you know, do we have enough money? Uh, Do we have good, positive relationships? Do we live in a good environment? Um, Is the governance that controls our environment something that we participate in and feel participative in? Um, Is our physical environment safe and healthy? Um, Do we do things that are meaningful for us in our work and outside of our work? All of these things contribute to all of those multiple factors. So we have a multi-causal, multi-output equation here when we talk about individual well-being. Furthermore, individual well-being is rooted in collective well-being. As individuals, our well-being is dependent on layers of collective well-being resources that start with the environment our need for space and air and water and food and interaction with nature, Um, the institutional environment that regulates our lives as human beings. Um, You know, if there is no no peace or justice or safety or social inclusion, or if those things do not apply to me, I cannot live in a state of well-being. And then ultimately the societal level, right, the supportive relationships around me, those are the collective resources that are the roots uh, for for individual well-being. And as we live our lives as individuals, we draw on those roots. Those are resources that we tap into if they are available to us. And ultimately, we give our lives meaning by giving back to them. Um, And this, I think, is the cycle that we need to think about if we talk about initiatives to encourage or create well-being. We need to think about enabling lives for people in which they have access to and can draw on those collective well-being resources and they have meaning and purpose in their ability to contribute to them. Um, So if we think about that and start to say, okay, so how can I categorize well-being initiatives or actions that I can take towards the future. Um, we, can, we can frame those on a spectrum from the collective to the individual scale. And also things which are active and growth-oriented. So how do I create and enable greater well-being? But also we need to think about things that are reactive and protective. right? So how do I uh, uh, mitigate the effects of things that, that are damaging um, to well-being. Um, and I, I think, you know, a lot of the discourse, certainly the commercial discourse around well-being focuses on this quadrant over here of enhancing individual well-being, right? So how can we um, work at an individual scale um to achieve higher performance, uh, 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 to be more successful, to have greater individual well-being. But I think a a broad perspective on well-being needs to kind of cover that spectrum. I'm not saying enhancing individual well-being is not important, it's vitally important. Um, But we also need to be thinking about how do we build collective well-being resources for the future? But also how do we support people whose well-being is damaged and threatened? right? Um, How do we mitigate factors which degrade or threaten our collective well-being resources. Um, so, uh, and I'll use that framework throughout this talk with some specific examples, but I need to talk about well-being in 2030, so let's talk a little bit about 2030 first. Um, when Matteo asked me to think about 2030, I was like, oh cool, 2030, I can think about the future, and I was like, well, you know, is tomorrow basically, you know, I'll hardly notice those 10 years passing by. Um, and so I'd like like us all to think about 2030 as the first step towards the end of this century right? and I think it changes your perspective Um, if instead of thinking about 2030 as being like today but a little bit more so and so looking around us at what's happening today um, uh, uh, as, as, as clues for 2030 if we step back and think well what What's, what's the world we're going to live in in 2100? And if the world is moving towards that, what, when we, what might we start to see already in 2030 as indications of that future state? Um, and if we think about that time scale, you know, only two things matter. It's not strictly speaking true. Two things are going to drive change over that timescale: Climate and demographics. And so I'm going to talk about well-being um, intersected with those two massive drivers of change. So first of all, climate. Um, it's getting hotter. Um, we've, we all see it and live it in our daily lives. Um, and we see it and it scares us on our screens um, in places near and far from us. Um, and we're starting to become familiar with this exponential curve, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere, which is a hell of a lot more important than the Moore's Law exponential curve, which normally gets projected in innovation conferences. Um, And it seems realistic that we're not going to limit climate change to one or two degrees it's most likely that we will see in our lifetimes three to four degrees of increase in average global temperatures. This is the world we are moving into. Um, And of course, that means a bunch of things which impact well-being. Rising sea levels, more violent weather, desertification, loss of arable land, climate migrations, energy crises, we will no longer be fighting wars over petroleum. We'll be fighting wars over water. These things are all bad for well-being. And so that's not I'm not saying that to get you down, but rather to start thinking about well-being opportunities in the context of those big changes. Um, and the, world, the near-term well-being opportunities that we can start thinking about to react to and to lean into those changes. So first of all, we think about, we, we, we talked a lot about millennials and and the need for purpose and meaning. People are seeking purpose and meaning in climate action. They see this wave coming, this tsunami of change coming, and it makes them unhappy and not well because they feel helpless. And so one of the most important well-being consequences of the climate emergency, is how can we channel that into opportunities for people to find purpose and meaning through action? Um, at a macro scale, of course, people are going to lose their jobs because traditional industries are going to be heavily impacted by this, this uh, 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 mega change. But there are new industries, and green tech is obviously one of them, that are going to be economic growth engines and so if we're thinking about well-being on a meta scale and jobs as a critical part of well-being we need to be thinking about green tech. On the kind of reactive and protective scale the conservative estimate for mid-century is we'll have 200 million climate migrants meaning people who have to leave their homes either permanently or temporarily because of these climate change factors. Um, that's an incredible resource, because we know that migrants are an incredible resource that drives change globally. It's also going to be an incredible stress test on the resilience of ins- infrastructure and institutions. And those that resilience is going to be tested in multiple other ways, physical ways, um, as well by those climate change effects. And so there are opportunities to really be leaning into thinking about that scale of migration that's roughly three times the total number of refugees in the world today, right? Um, And thinking about how do we build resilience into our institutions and infrastructure. And those to me are well-being. These are all well-being questions, right, that we need to think about from a well-being perspective at a national level, at an organizational level, at an individual level. Um, The other big driver, if we look at that long-term scale, is demographics. An interesting thing with demographics and global population is that's not an, unlike carbon dioxide, that's not an uncontrolled exponential growth curve. It seems pretty clear that our population is going to level out at about 10 or 11 million people by the end of the century. And the reason is we've already reached peak child, right? There are 2 billion people under 15 today, there will still be 2 billion people under 15 at the end of the century. So most of that population growth is people living longer. Having roughly two children per family, but living a lot longer. Um, And that's a really interesting change, and it combines with a massive change in urbanisation. So the rural population of the world is decreasing. Think about that. So as as our... world's population grows now from 8 billion to 11 billion through this century, the rural population is going to shrink. So we have urban populations that are growing at almost double the general population rate. Um, And the third thing that's really interesting about this demographic change is this massive geopolitical change in the relative weight of continents Um, So if we live in a world today um, that is dominated by Asia, we'll live in a world by the end of the century that is dominated by Asia and Africa. This century, if last century has been about the rise of Asia, this century is about the rise of Africa. Um, And so if you start to put all these things together and think about it from a well-being perspective. what it comes together into me is this idea of, well, where are people going to live? Where are all these people going to live? And many, many, many of them are going to be living in what's called megacities, cities with a population of greater than 10 million people. Um, But there's going to be two very distinct categories of megacities. There's going to be the megacities that are already megacities today, that are already ageing, and that are potentially going to be shrinking in population through the next century. And the megacities that are on the verge of becoming it today, that are extremely young, that are growing extremely rapidly. Um, And so if we look mid-century at two extremes there, we have Tokyo and Lagos, which are going to have the same total population, about 32 million people. About the same working age population of 18 to 19 million people. But with the big difference that in Tokyo there will be 10 million retired people, 65 plus, and in Lagos there will be 13 million children younger than 15. So you have these two very, very different categories of megacities. In Tokyo, Tokyo today is 35 million people. It won't be any bigger. It will be slightly smaller. Lagos today is just below 10 million people. Think about that. There will be more school children in Lagos in the middle of this century, than there are total people in Lagos today, right? So those two categories of megacities are the two most important contexts in which people will be living in the middle of this century. Um, So that raises some really interesting wellness questions. Um, The first is is this idea of um, care responsibilities, right? All of those working age people In both Tokyo and Lagos, will have care responsibilities, but their care responsibilities will be leaning into different generations. In Tokyo, it's going to be about your care responsibilities towards your parents and grandparents, and in Lagos, it's going to be about your care responsibilities towards your children and grandchildren. Um, But what we need to understand about care responsibilities is that fulfilling care responsibilities is a kind of wellness-cubed right? Or at least wellness squared, right? Because we become well, are well as human beings when we fulfill our care responsibilities. That's what we're here to do. What we're here to do is to care for each other, right? But also, obviously, when we fulfill our care responsibilities, we also bring well-being to those that we care for. Um, And yet we live in this kind of industrial model that has said, okay, leave your care responsibilities at the door, when you walk into your workplace and when you become a professional adult and that's very bad for us, very bad for our society. So we need to think about how are we going to create societies that encourage fulfilment of care responsibilities. Obviously the topic of livable megacities is a huge well-being topic. We will have 10 cities with populations greater than 50 million by the end of this century. We've never had a city of that scale. All 10 of those are cities with less than 10 million population today. So there's a, there's a massive new kind of urban environment and we need to understand will that urban environment be awful or can we make it great? And the huge wellbeing opportunity is to make that a great urban environment. And then if we think about you know protecting, the protective moves against some of these changes, people have talked a lot about loneliness, we have what's called a loneliness epidemic. Um, in those ageing cities, the most common family unit will be the one-person family, a single person living in a household, and the most common one-person household is a single elderly person who no longer works. So you have no immediate family with you, and you no longer have the social interactions that come from from everyday work. It's a crisis for your sense of connectedness, which we saw as a key factor in well-being. And then... There's an inadequacy of the nuclear family as the core construct for for care in that in that situation. There's an inadequacy of the care institutions um, that we have in our in our modern states to deal with that. So we need to be reinventing our models of care, no longer relying so much on the nuclear family and seeing what other social constructs can we encourage the development of um, uh, to enable uh, uh, that, that reciprocal care in this kind of society. Um, so I want to share some examples of things that we can see today, in 2020, that um, maybe lean in a little bit to some of these some of these big changes. And they're all small things. None of these things are big enough that you would look at them and say, "Hey, this is where the world is going," because of how rapidly this is accelerating. But there are things where I can say, "Hey, I think this is important." and could be where the world is going because of these big changes that are happening, and they start to address that. Um, So some of you may know Germany um, had an influx of about one million refugees from Syria a couple of years ago. Um, And one of the things that the German industrial infrastructure um, did to adapt to that was to create a special model of refugee apprenticeships so that uh, young refugees could enter the apprenticeship model in Germany, which is a really important entry point to the kind of industrial economic infrastructure of Germany and has been over the last 100 years. Um, And I think that's an indication of something that we will need to have more and more of in the future, which is to think about entry points for people into society at all stages of life, right? Our societies are modeled on... We build a pipeline of our, future, of our future citizens through our own national infrastructure, through our own school systems, through the way people grow up in our country, and those will be the adults of our future. More and more, the adults of our future may be entering our societies at different stages of life, and we need to have entry pathways for them. And it's very, very difficult today as an adult to enter a new society. So what are the entry pathways that we can create throughout life for people is a key uh, uh, wellness challenge and opportunity. Another very simple one is babies at work, right? Um, used to be like this uh, when most workplaces were also homes. Um, and then with the Industrial Revolution, people no longer worked in their homes, and we invented childcare, and we separated families from work. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's been bad for us, Um, And it's maybe no longer necessary now that most of us don't work in factories. So we need to be looking at what are the models to bring children back into the workplace and to make childcare a more natural part of working life. A third category is um, kind of intergenerational living and intergenerational collective living. Um, We've created the model of the home based around the nuclear family, right, so the home is a box within which mum and dad and two kids and a dog live, right? Um, And it contains both private space and communal space for that unit of people. And there's no communal space for larger units of people outside that box. And we need to break that and think about how do we create new divisions between private and communal space and new models of urban living in which shared communal space is a natural part of the way we build Um, our future cities. Um, And then finally this idea of the 15 minute city which is actually an electoral slogan of the mayor of Paris but it's this idea of living in a city where everything that I need for my well-being is within a 15 minute radius of me. Not a 15 minute radius in my car a 15 minute radius on foot or by bicycle. Um, And That very simple idea has so many layers uh, uh, to it because it's about making a city which is livable on foot and by bicycle, which means it has trees and cycle pathways um, and pedestrian crossings, you know. Um, It means focusing on a form of urban density, of of mixed-use urban density, which is the opposite of 20th century urban planning which pushed different functions of the city into different parts of the city and moved back towards something that's closer to the medieval city where all different uh, kinds of, of functions are mixed into high-density uh, urban environments. And I think you know projects that focus on these things are the well-being projects that if we focus attention on them today um, can be building towards well-being in 2030. Um, And beyond. So I just want to say a few words about how you can apply this framework within the context of your own organization and it's basically a recap of the process I walked you through here which is first of all you know think in terms of macro trends what are the macro trends that are relevant to your organization what are the equivalent of you know climate and demographics for the world as a whole Right? If you zoom into your organization, your industry, or your scope of action. Um, and then using this, this, this framework of active to reactive um, individuals to collective, think about the well-being opportunities that are driven um, by those macro trends. And then dig into those opportunity areas to really design and test and, and, and measure the impact of, of specific initiatives. Um, that that address them and I think um, ultimately the goal of that is to help you and your your, your organization to thrive um, but also to to, to to give back and support you know the thriving of us of us all um, which is what we're here to do as human beings thank you